Welcome to this message from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. City Bible Church is a vibrant community of people with one common desire to experience God, enjoy people, and celebrate life. We're talking about the uh, EP416, the series, as you see in every campus that's posted on the billboard and around. EP416 is from the book of Ephesians 416 that we'll be dealing with during this series with the word connectedness. I told you a story, at least I started on it, about Bowling Alone, a research company that did some work in America some years ago, a few years ago, that uh, put together all the stats they could on what was going on in the culture in America when it came to connectedness, relationships, both in family and outside of family. Well, they came back with a... Uh, a lot of statistics, and of course you wouldn't call the book statistics or just the research, so they called the book Bowling Alone. Bowling Alone was taken from one of the research they did in the uh, social area of America to find out that the bowling alleys and leagues were on their way down. Why? Is that people were beginning to bowl by themselves. And so they used that as really kind of the picture that everybody could see a bowling league with a group of people, you know, hooping it up and having a great time and bowling together with five, six or seven people with their same color shirts on and, you know, drinking their Pepsi and doing the stuff that they do and, you know, bowling. And then you have this person over here that is bowling alone. They don't have any friends. They don't have anybody there with them. And that person has paid their fees and they're there waiting for the ball and they're bowling alone, you know, getting the game done and they get right through it probably six times faster than the people next to them. And they use this imagery to get everybody's attention that something has changed in our culture when it comes to extended relationship. Just a while back, the percentages that came back with how many people you have to talk with, probably the percentages would be the same across America as they would be in every room that I'm preaching to this morning. Everybody that downloads this on the iPod, wherever you find the message, you would probably fit into this categories somewhat when they show the percentages of how many people have more than three close people to speak with about a crisis or a need in their life. Uh, About 10 years ago, that percentage was about 50%. The people would have at least three close friends to speak with in their life that they could share their life and actually uh, download some stuff that they're going through and get some kind of input from at least three people. In the last 10 years, that has shrunk to 25%. Only 25% of the people would have more than three people. They wouldn't have even three people to speak with, and they have no one to actually talk to about anything in their life. So they call this the bowling alone culture, the bowling alone America. Something has changed in our extended relationship because people move, the job hours, the family breakdown, the marriage breakdown, the things that are going on. People are busy and people are private. People are more into their entertainment centers. They're more into their Twitter and their Facebook of their younger. They're more into the games. A lot of games they can play by themselves. They don't even have to have anybody else. The, the machinery becomes your partner. And so what happens is that in America, the face-to-face contact with other human beings, the face-to-face relationship that we used to have more of a normal go at is not so normal anymore. It's actually pretty difficult to find those kind of friends. It's actually pretty difficult to go deeper in people's lives. It's actually pretty difficult to find people that you trust or people that you would pour your life out to. Maybe your extended family now is extended in other states and you married, moved somewhere else and you're a young couple and you're by yourself 
and you've been this way for a while and you don't have your mother to speak with or your father or maybe the uncle or the best brother or whatever it is. And all of a sudden you find yourself having no one to talk with. And sometimes spouses don't talk enough. And so what happens is there comes a overwhelming sense. And this is what they're saying about America, an overwhelming sense of loneliness that's in people's mind. They feel lonely in their life. They feel lonely in their soul. They don't feel connected. They don't feel relationally whole. They don't feel happy about it. One thing about the way God created us, nothing will make us feel good about this area than what he created us for, to have relationship with him and to have relationship with real people, not relationship with a Facebook computer screen or a Twitter number or with someone else or just by doing uh, faxes and phones and whatever and, and just by sitting in and having a relationship with a particular series that you watch like the Lost series or 24 or something on television that you're really into and that becomes kind of your, your relationship family. You feel some connected to that television series or some actor or something that goes on or why Oprah is so absolutely phenomenally successful in our nation. Is, is, there's no real rocket science to have to answer that. It's because she brings to your life a place for people to talk and for you to feel like I'm having a little social intercourse here. This is something I can really understand. I really want to know about. And so people plug into all these reality shows and talk shows and even radio shows that used to not do so well, they do so amazingly well on the radio just to have a talk radio show that people can call in and talk. A while back, a man in Kansas ran an ad, and his ad was very simple, and he was being sincere about it, wasn't really trying to make money. Uh, but he ran an ad and just said, if you would like to speak with someone for five minutes and not be interrupted, I will do that for you for five dollars. He began to receive 10 to 20 calls a day. And that grew from that until his schedule was completely filled. And all he did was listen. He didn't interrupt. He didn't give counsel. He didn't try to stop them. He just sat there in a chair. And for five minutes, they had someone they could talk to. And they were willing to pay for that five minutes just to speak with a person. Now, that's a culture that is without relationships. Now, that is not the way God wants us to live. That's not the way God wants you to live. There's a reason why I'm dealing with these statistics and this subject on connectability in the book of Ephesians, because that is not God's will for your life. There's a little book out called All Making All Things Better. It's a book written about uh, a teacher who actually did an educational experiment with a group of kids, 8, 9, 10, 11, And she would ask these kids a particular question. The question was always huge. It was one of those world questions like, if you could, how would you solve the ozone layer problem? If you could, how would you have clean drinking water for all the people in the Amazon? If you could, how could you get everyone to quit smoking? If you could, and they would give them all these massive, huge questions. How could you stop nuclear war and et cetera, et cetera. And these kids would come up with their dialogue and their answers. And some of them were quite phenomenal. And that's why it became a book, All Things Better, because the kids actually were thinking more realistic and better than some of the adults and the people that were tackling the problem. And so one of the questions they asked was this, if you could in America, how would you solve the loneliness problem? How would you solve it? Well, they went through the different children. The first kid says, well, what I would do is I would take 
and put it into the newspaper and ask for everybody that's lonely to send me their address. Then I would put it in the newspaper and ask everybody who's not lonely to send me their address. And then I would put back into the newspaper both of the peoples who are lonely and not lonely, and I would match their addresses up and tell them to get together. (laughs) Duh! It would probably work. But we would spend millions on researching ourselves to death on why another little boy just simply said, oh, we have lonely people? A boy, of course. He would say, I know how to solve that. Talking food. (laughs) When they pick up their sandwich, the sandwich would say to them, how's your day going? (laughs) When they pick up their apple, the apple would say, what's going on with your life right now? And so the food would talk with you. You would listen to the food, then just eat it and be gone. And then you'd go on your way. But you would always have someone to talk with. Another little girl said, what you need to do to solve loneliness is buy somebody a pet. Or a husband, both the same thing. And so you wonder how they're thinking about marriage or about anybody else. And so the children try to solve the problem of loneliness. Now, this is the fact of the matter. Most of us right now in our lifetime, whether you're young or you have gone through life, you probably, if you were honest about this, most, I would say 75% of the people I'm talking to are in need of more friends, better friends and deeper friends. Most people do not have enough people to speak with, enough people to lay things out with. They don't have the father figure, the mother figure, the brother figure, the sister figure, those kind of people in their life. So they don't have a connectability. Why do people make bad judgments and bad decisions? It's pretty simple in my mind. They're not talking to anybody. It's not like they're rebels. It's not like they're stupid. It's not like they're trying to do something wrong. They have no input on what to do about their career. You can't believe some of the questions I have teenagers ask me when we do the youth camp every year that I've been going to every year since I've been in the ministry. That's 33 years. I've always gone to the church youth camp because I want to sit around and be uh, available for five days with the kids and, le- and, and learn and also let them do whatever to ask me whatever. And I get asked some of the most amazing questions questions by teenagers that someone should have already answered. Someone should have already been talking with them about this. Some of the things they would ask me is so embarrassingly uh, low level information that you would look at it and say, do you really not know this? Or are you joking me? Are you trying just to mess with my mind? It's no, they don't know. They don't have anybody that they can raise their hand or get with an aunt, a friend, or someone that is It's true blue to them and say, this is what I'm thinking about doing, or this is what I have done, or this is the question I have about life, or what do you think I should do about this? And I end up answering things almost like a, uh, you know, a, a low level of counseling, but like a father to these kids that really should have more input from other people. We have so much information and so little personal input. We have so much knowledge that's flooding our mind, but we still can't seem to know what to do about relationships. You know, it's amazing in all the stuff that's going on. Now I'm talking about hundreds and thousands of books. You know, there's, there's 16,000 books printed today. When you got up this morning, there are already 16,000 more book, different titles, 
printed today. There's already a million more pages put on the web today before you even got your shoes on. And so every day, information is just coming our way by boatloads. You can, you can get into any information level you want through any avenue you want. It's available today. But with all the information, thousands of books on marriage, on, on love and relationship and thousands of ways to relate to people, it's amazing to me that young people are having the hardest time finding a mate. People are pushing their marriage off further and further and further and further where they used to get married 100 years ago when they were 16, 17. And then that grew to 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 24, 25, 25, 25. Now the average age for marriage is pushing close to 30 because people are having a hard time finding Mr. or Mrs. Anybody, not even Mr. and Mrs. Right, just Mr. and Mrs. Anybody I might even be interested in to relate to. And they're afraid to jump in. They're afraid to say, I think I'm going to relate to this person. And I'm sure when you hear statistics like you did this morning, if you're sitting there as a, as a single young person and someone says, well, we've been married 65 years, you can't even imagine that. That they would be with the same person for 65 years, 45 years. I don't know if I make that choice. I'm going to be with the same person. What happens if you get tired of him? What happens if, if, if it's not right? What happens if you end up marrying a, a dud and they get dudder? What happens if it's, if it's, you know, dumb and dumber kind of a thing? What happens if I marry into the dumb gene of their tr- family tree? And, and I don't know that. And so people have Fears about relationship. I want you to know something that I believe that with all the information, everything that's going on, you do not have to live that way. You don't have to enter into life that way. God has a way to help you relate to people, to marry the right person. You don't have to live with fear. You don't have to live with anxiety about it. You can relate. You can grow. You can marry. You can have a better marriage. You can have a parent. You can be a better parent. You can live life and you can enjoy life without all the questions. Can I hear an amen out there? It's an important factor to relate. Connectability. All right. In your Bible, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, up to our pivotal scripture, which is verse 16. But I want to read all the verses together. All right. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. If you have a pen, pencil, something you mark your Bible when I preach, I'd love for you just to mark your Bible all up all the time and write little notes to yourself, underline key words, ask yourself questions when you open the Word of God because the Word of God is living, powerful, and this is the tool that God uses to help disciple your mind and your soul into living properly. The book of Ephesians comes out of the prison epistles of the Apostle Paul. When he was in prison, he wrote Colossians, Philippians, and Ephesians around the same time. The prison epistles came out of the heart of the greatest leader outside of Jesus Christ. I think Paul is the greatest leader that's ever lived on planet earth. He wrote 14 of our epistles. He's a man that had been to the third heaven. He's a man who had given his life to the gospel. He died before he was 60 years of age, but he was also a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was like a PhD before he ever got saved. He was the top of the gene line. He was the top of the genius line. He was the top of the reading line. He was the top of the philosophical line. Paul of Sarsis was the man back in those days. He was the PhD. Of everything. When he got saved, he became a radical apostle who took all of those skills and put them together to write the epistles, etc. Now, 
When Paul talks about the church, he understands the church. If there's anybody that understands how to build a church, it's the Apostle Paul. Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church, gates of hell will not prevail, and uh, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. If anybody received a revelation about the keys of the kingdom and building the the church and, and the gates of hell will not prevail, and the church would be that kind of rock institution that will last the entire culture, outlive the culture, and be here when Jesus comes back. It's the Apostle. So Paul, and so when he begins to write about the church, you have to listen and listen very carefully. We're going to start with Ephesians 4, 1, but I want you to back up a couple of verses and I want you to underline out of Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8. All right, get the context, then we'll read chapter 4. Ephesians 3, 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, the grace was given me. This grace was given me. What grace? That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning I would like you to underline, if you do, mystery. What is he speaking about? The mystery, the secret that he's going to reveal. The word mystery is that those that are initiated into it will understand it. It's a secret. Paul says, I have a secret I'm going to share with you. It's a mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by who? Notice, might be made known by the, say it out loud. Say it again. Might be made known by the. Come on, shout the word church at me. So the church is going to manifest the wisdom of God, the power of God. It's going to do something that all the ages have been waiting for. The church is very important. It's going to manifest, notice in verse 10, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal, if you have a pen, underline eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now down to chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all loneliness, lowliness, and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. I want you to notice something as we start right here. You cannot fulfill anything I'm reading if you are not connected to the church, connected to people, in a level of relationship that you would need any kind of long-suffering. You would need any kind of gentleness. You would need any kind of bearing someone's burden. These do not happen outside of relationship, outside of connectability. They do not happen. And Paul says, when you build the church right, you're going to be connected in such a way that these things will begin to happen. Verse 3, endeavoring, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body. Come on, shout one body. body. Now shout one one spirit. Just as you were called, everyone shout one hope. Of your calling. Everyone shout one Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God. And Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Verse 7. Now he starts talking to you specifically. But to each one of us. Turn to your neighbor and say we are the us. To each one of us. Grace. Was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, I want you to turn to someone and say, you already have grace. Every person that has Christ has grace. 
You have grace for salvation. You also have grace for gifting. You also have grace for ministering to other people. There's measures of grace. And here the apostle says to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, he says, verse 9, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this, he ascended. We're talking about Christ ascending. Remember, the ascension is not the resurrection. It's two different things. He ascended. What does it mean that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? When Christ died, he did some things in hell, in heaven, before he ever came out of the grave. There was an up and down of Christ taking care of business that if you don't understand, you need to read this scripture and you will begin to see there was something going on when Christ died on the cross besides just what you saw with the body hanging there. Verse 10, he who descended, also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself, everyone circle and say out loud the word gave. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. So these five were given. They've never been taken back. They still exist. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers still exist in the body of Christ today. They've never been taken back. They're not gone. They're in the church. For, verse 12, the equipment of the saints, that's you and me, for the work of ministry, meaning that I have a ministry to work. For the edifying of the body of Christ, meaning that if I'm equipped, I have grace, the ministry I've given, God has given me will be enlarged, and I will actually touch other people, and they will be helped, and they will be edified. That's the carpenter word for building up. The body of Christ. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, are you connected? Do you know what your gift is? Are you building up anybody? Is your grace being dispensed in anybody's life? Are you one of those kind of people that's a New Testament Christian that you're living in such a way that you understand these words and you are so connected to the church? Loneliness and those things are so far-fetched. When you're serving other people, you will not be lonely. When you're helping other people, you will never be lonely. If you're looking for someone always just to relate to you, you might end up being lonely. But if you look for people to help and minister to and put your grace on and lift up and edify and build and take their burden and and walk with them and and fix them up and, and be that kind of a person... You will never be lonely. Matter of fact, you will be very busy. You will be very full. You will have an abundance of burden in your life. You will see people change. You will be thinking about it at nighttime, in the morning. You'll be living a whole different kind of life. You're not thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about your problem. You're not thinking about all the stuff you need. You're thinking about the burdens you're bearing. You're thinking about who you need to be long-suffering with. You're thinking about building up someone else. In that context, you will not be lonely. Can I hear an amen? But of course, if it's a self-life, you're going to be lonely. And your glass will never be full. Nobody can fill it up enough. Because it's all about you. It's about your need and your life and your hurt and your pain. And no one's paying attention to me. No one's talking with me. No one's calling me. No one comes to dinner. No one takes me to dinner. I'm by myself all the time. If that's you, please wake up and smell the coffee this morning. If that's you, there's a way for you to get out of that selfish life. There is a way for you not to live with that glass always half empty. The way for you to do that is not to keep trying to get everybody to be your friend. It's simply to start being a friend to someone else. 
It's not you getting all the ministry you need. It's you finding a way to connect to other people and help them grow in Jesus Christ. Now, where are you at with this? What are you going to do about it? The Apostle Paul is smart enough to tell us this is how you do it. Verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're all going to grow. That we should no longer be children. Now, this is not what we want. Children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The enemy is against your soul. The enemy wants to deceive you. The doctrines of devils are not just doctrines about hell and heaven. It's doctrines of selfishness that can do the same thing of deception as anything else. Doctrines that get you to live a wrong life, to think wrong, feel wrong, and do wrong. Doctrines of devils. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love. Well, you don't need to do that unless you're connected. May grow up. Boy, that's a novel idea. Grow up. Have you ever just said to someone, why don't you just grow up? You know, if you have children, you're going to be saying it a few times. And the older they get, the more you realize they are growing or they need to grow or you need to say it more. And you as a parent want to make sure that they can grow and they can mature. And that as they reflect maturity, they reflect something that's wise and awesome and you're a happy parent. But it's a horrible thing to say to a 30-year-old when they're acting like they're a 10-year-old to grow up. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with a person who's been around church for one year, three years, five years. And they're not growing. They're not mature. They're not thinking right. They they don't serve. They're just as selfish as ever. They don't even know what the Bible says. They have no idea how to help anyone else. They're just living their happy little private, boring, selfish life. And they're immature. They're irritating. But we love them. (laughs) Because we all pass through those channels. How many of you would say, You know, Pastor Frank, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, I need to grow up a little bit. Just grow up a little bit. How many would say, at least I know I'm a little bit too selfish? I mean, we all are. There's not a person, including myself, that doesn't have a self-problem. You have to kill it, shoot it, bend it, dunk it, drown it, choke it. Talking about your old man, not your father, yourself. <laughs> the carnal side of you, that piece of you that tries to have its way. No, it's not going to. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to grow up. Now, here's our verse. Verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself and love that verse if you only had that verse to do the whole church teaching on you could do it that one verse in that 
We have the principles that make a healthy New Testament church, not an American church, not American culture church, not a church that fits the culture, not a church that is formed by the culture, not a church that is thinking like a culture, but a church that is formed by the scripture and thinking like the scripture and formed by the Holy Spirit is a church of people that are connected, joined, loving and serving one another with their grace and their gift. They are the committed people of God to one another and to Jesus Christ ahead. They are the church. Can I hear an amen? amen? In every church, as in Jesus' ministry, There's the crowd, there's the attenders, there's the congregation, and there's the core. Jesus had the same thing, the multitudes, the followers, then he had the 70, and then he had the 12. When you go through the early church, you'll find the same thing. They had the 12, 120 upper room, and then they had the multitude, the congregation, and then they fanned out to the cities. But even in that, there was only a certain amount of people that were disciples and became, like the scripture says, fully devoted followers of Christ. You know, the Bible does not differentiate between the word Christian and the word disciple. We do. Somebody that's really serious, they will be in discipleship studies. They will call themselves a disciple. Because the word disciple has the idea of discipline. The word disciple has some funny scriptures, something like, bear your cross daily, die to self, crucified. As Christ was, so you shall be. To be a disciple has some burden-bearing, cross-bearing, dying blood stuff in it. So people go back over to the Christian side. I'm a Christian. What are you? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Or they'll say, oh, I'm a believer. Whenever I travel, I have a chance to sit next to someone and they're trapped for whatever time they're there. <laughs> and so I never, ever, ever tell them what I do. Never. Because the conversation ends if I say to them, oh, I'm a minister. <laughs> they put on their earphones, pretend like they're asleep. I've had it all. So if I don't say anything, they start drinking. If they drink, I don't care about that. Or they start telling me stuff that's sometimes pretty funny. But if they knew who I was, they wouldn't tell me. And so I'll just go along with it. And then I finally get to ask them a few questions like, so what do you, what do, you do with your life? What, 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 kind of, what, do, what do you do? Well, I'm... Oh. Well, are you a church person? Oh, no, 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 I'm not, 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 I'm not a church person, you know, Easter. Or they'll say, oh yeah, I belong to the church. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a church member. When do you go? Christmas? Thanksgiving? Funerals? Weddings? I'm very consistent. <laughs> and then I would ask them, and this is always the stumbling question, never fails, unless they really are. Are you a Christian? Well, what do you mean by that? I belong to the church. No, you know, because you put a chair in the garage and sit in that chair, it doesn't turn you into a car. You, you, are you a Christian? Well, what do you mean? Am I a Christian? I mean, do you believe in anything? Oh, I don't know. Well, do you believe in the Bible? Oh, I think there's a lot of errors in the Bible. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross? I believe he did, but I don't know about the resurrection. I think that's a hoax. And so as you get into it, they don't believe anything. They've never been born again. But in their mind, 
God be my witness, nine out of ten of them, in their mind, they're on their way to heaven. Because they belong to the church. Catholic, Protestant, doesn't matter. So I finally get down to telling them, someone lied to you. Because I'll never say him again, I don't care. I say, someone lied to you, you're not going to heaven. Well, you're kind of a judgmental, blankly blank, blank. I said, I'm not, I'm not being judgmental. I'm just saying to you, I don't think you're going to get into heaven. Well, how can you say that? Well, because the Bible, and then I start bringing them to the gateway of a belief in something that is concrete. People in America, because they attend church, doesn't make them Christian. And because you call yourself a Christian, does not make you a disciple. But in Jesus' day, Paul's day, and in the Scripture's day, which is for us, there should be no difference. If you believe in Jesus, you're a disciple. You bear your cross. You give your life. You follow the Lord. You are a follower of Christ. You're a fully devoted follower of Christ. And all that that means. What are you? What are you? If... The whole church did church the way you do church. What kind of a church would City Bible Church be? If I could multiply you 6,700 times and just stamp onto you City Bible Church DNA and say, this is the model and I choose you and I choose you or I choose you and I stick you up and I stamp you and from that point on, Everybody prays like you, evangelizes like you, loves like you, forgives like you, serves like you, does their job like you. Tell me, would Jesus look down at our church and say, yeah, now that is the church I'm looking for. Or would he say, We need a little change down there. Fact is this. You have influence. People at your job, your family. One of the kindest things and the most wonderful things my kids have ever said to me is they respect my Christianity. Say, Dad, you're a real Christian. You forgive like a real Christian. You live like a real Christian. You're the same in the pulpit as you're at home. There's no difference. I have my kids, all four of them have said that. You're the same. There's, there's no two Frank Damasios. There's just one, and that one is enough. <laughs> I'm not perfect. God knows that. I got my faults. If you hang around, you can point them out, and I'll repent of them. But there's one thing that's a done deal in Frank Tomazio's life. It's a done deal. Never going back to it. Jesus Christ is my Savior. Jesus Christ is my Lord. I am a disciple of Jesus. I'm trying to live my life like Jesus. I try to think like Jesus, feel like Jesus, forgive like Jesus, love like Jesus, serve like Jesus. He's my hero. He's my model. I'm following his footsteps. People make mistakes. Church makes mistakes. I make mistakes. Jesus doesn't make mistakes. He's my model. That's who I'm going after. That's who I want to be like. That's what the church should be like. What the world needs now is Jesus, sweet Jesus. 
Come on, can I hear an amen? We need more of Jesus. Well, how's that going to happen? It's it's not going to happen. Listen to me. It's not going to happen unless Jesus has a body to live through. It's clear. The Bible says he is the head and we are the body. The Bible says in the parable that Jesus gives, and he says, when you were hungry, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I, one of the disciples said, <clears throat> excuse me, teacher Jesus, but I don't remember doing that. When you were in prison, visited you. When you were, what are you talking about? He says, every time you do it to the least of these, you do it to me body. When the apostle Paul was on the horse and he got knocked off and the bright light and the word came to him and he was on his way to persecute more Christians. He's a hater of Christians before he got saved. And Jesus says to him when he knocks him down, the great light is in his eyes and Paul says, who is this? And Jesus says, this is Jesus whom thou persecutest. Paul says, I didn't I never persecuted you. Mm -hmm. Every time you touch one of my people, you're touching me. Because that's my body. That's me. That's me right there. If you give a cup of cold water to someone, Jesus says, you're giving the water to me. If you work well for your boss, Jesus and Paul says, you're doing it as unto him. You're the body. Jesus does not manifest himself in bodily form. Although people have visions and stuff in different nations. But we are the hands, the feet, the mouth, the emotions, the heart, the feeling, the spirit of Jesus. And the closest the people in your family will ever get to Jesus will be as they see Jesus in you. And if you mess it up, like Francis Schaeffer, my hero writer of all times. He's my favorite. He's my hero. He said, the last Christian apologetic is not written in books and in libraries. It is seen in the life of people who say they are Jesus followers. The last apologetics, the proof, the evidence that there's anything real about what we believe will not be in what we say. It will be in how we embrace this world with Jesus. And when that happens... People get saved. People love Jesus. People say to me, well, I don't like the church. Sometimes I say to them, I don't blame you. We got a lot of problems. But I'm not talking to you about being saved by the church. I'm talking to you about being saved by a man called Jesus. He'll never do you wrong. He's a lover of your soul. Others will fail. He'll never fail you. He's Jesus Christ. He's Lord of Lords. He's King of Kings. He's awesome. He's the lover of your life. You are in the palm of his hands. Jesus.